Hello and welcome to the World Nuclear News Podcast. I'm Alex Hunt. It's been a big month of nuclear energy news in Germany, Finland and Turkey. There's also been plenty of developments on the small modular reactor front. And we'll be joined by Renaud Krasus, president of Newart, to hear about its SMR plans. What is very interesting with SMRs is that among the clients or the potential clients that we have, we do not have only classic utilities that are interested in nuclear, but also industrial players or utilities that had never taken care about nuclear before. Largely speaking, it's widening the scope of civil nuclear in the energy transition. But before that, I'm joined by World Nuclear News' Claire Maiden and Warwick Pipe to pick out some of the main news developments of the past month. As mentioned, it's been a very busy news month, including Germany completing its phasing out of nuclear energy. This was a particularly poignant moment, wasn't it, Warwick? That's right, Alex. On 15th of April, Germany's last three operating power reactors were switched off. The country's phase-out policy can be traced back to 1998, when a new coalition government, which for the first time included the anti-nuclear Greens, agreed a change in Germany's law in order to allow a phase-out. However, it was not until March 2011, in response to the Fukushima accident in Japan, that then-Chancellor Angela Merkel ordered the immediate shutdown of eight reactors. At that time, Germany was getting about a quarter of its electricity from 17 reactors. The remaining reactors were due to shut down by the end of 2022. However, operation of the last three reactors, which are Emsland, ISA-2 and Neckarvestheim-2, was extended until the 15th of April this year to ensure power supplies over the winter. The government has determined that there will be sufficient power supplies going forward, but this has meant bringing online new fossil fuel plants and even opening new lignite mines. Germany used to be a major player in the nuclear industry, and this has proved to be quite a controversial decision, hasn't it? There was a last-minute call by a group of international scientists in an open letter to Chancellor Olaf Scholz to keep those three units running. To quote them, they said, In view of the threat that climate change poses to life on our planet and the obvious energy crisis in which Germany and Europe find themselves due to the unavailability of Russian gas, we call on you to continue operating the last remaining German nuclear power plants. They did know that other countries have considered reducing their use of nuclear power, but over the last few years have instead decided to extend the operation of their existing reactors and even to build new ones. Unfortunately, Germany has now followed through on its phase-out plan. It has also led to interesting dynamics in the European Union, with neighbours France and Poland amongst those countries planning large-scale nuclear expansion in the years ahead. Absolutely. Neighbouring Poland is embarking on a nuclear programme involving both large and small reactors, which country sees as a way to achieve its climate goals. The Netherlands also is planning new reactors, as is France. These differing opinions on nuclear have led to some heated debates in the European Parliament. Germany already imports a significant part of its electricity, so it looks very likely that a large part of this is, and will continue to be, produced by nuclear power plants in its neighbouring countries. But Claire, there's also been a fair amount of brighter news elsewhere. Yes, that's right, Alex. We are welcoming another member to the Club of Nuclear Energy Countries. Fuel has been delivered to Turkey's first nuclear power plant at Akuyu. Now, this site is on the Mediterranean coast in Turkey in the province of Mersin in the south of the country. 
and it was earmarked as a suitable site for the construction of a nuclear power plant as long ago as the 1970s. But it wasn't until 2010 that the governments of Russia and Turkey signed a cooperation agreement for the construction of four Russian-designed VVER-1200 pressurised water reactors at the site. Construction of the first unit began in 2018, with Unit 2 in 2020, Unit 3 in 2021, construction on Unit 4 began last, last year. Now, as I say, these are Russian-designed plants and Russia is taking a leading role in the project. The reactors are being built with Russian finance under what's known as a Build, Own, Operate or BOO boo, model. It's a project worth in excess of 20 billion US dollars and the Russian side set up the AKU nuclear joint stock company to implement the project after the 2010 cooperation agreement was signed. AKU Nuclear is currently fully owned by Russian companies with Rosatom International, that's Rosatom's subsidiary for foreign reactor construction and operation projects, currently holding about 75% of the joint stock company, according to information from the company. But the terms of that 2010 agreement mean that Russia can in future sell up to 49% of the joint stock company. And of course, Russia will be supplying the fuel for the plant. Rosatom's Director General Alexei Likachev was quoted by the TASS news agency as saying they plan to carry out a physical startup in 2024 and bring the reactor to the minimum controllable power level in order to generate electricity steadily in 2025. By the time the plant is fully operational, which is now scheduled for 2028, it will have a capacity of some 4,800 megawatts and is expected to meet about 10% of Turkey's electricity needs. Well, although this is Turkey's first nuclear power plant, the country has operated a small Triga research reactor at Istanbul Technical University since 1979, so Turkey has got some experience there with nuclear and nuclear regulation. This is now mostly the responsibility of Turkey's nuclear regulator, NDK, a body which was set up in 2018 and took over responsibility for regulation of nuclear power plants and all related fuel cycle activities from the Turkish Atomic Energy Authority, or TAEK. But looking to the future as well as the Akoyu plant, a plant has also been proposed at Sinop, which is on the Black Sea coast, and a third site proposed at Inyada, also on the Black Sea coast. Various site preparation work has been undertaken at Sinop, although no contracts have yet been awarded for plants at either of those two sites. So the actual ceremony was held to mark the arrival of the first nuclear fuel, and that is seen as a significant moment? It is significant, because when the fuel arrives on site, you can then say it's a nuclear site. Up until that point, it's been an industrial site where they're building a power station. The next step after the fuel arrives on site, the next major step will be loading into the reactor. And when that's completed, the reactor can be brought to first criticality. After that, it's normal practice to run through various tests as the power of the reactor is gradually increased until eventually it's synchronised to the electricity grid before moving to full power and commercial operation. Among those present at the ceremony, alongside the President's and the IAEA Director-General, was World Nuclear Association's Director-General, Sama Bilbao in Leon, as she had this to say. The significance of this moment extends beyond Turkey. With the global nuclear community committed to delivering new nuclear power plants at the speed and at the scale required, the Akuyu power plant is a powerful symbol of this shared commitment. It's a testament to international collaboration and demonstrate that we, as an industry, can build nuclear reactors efficiently. 
World Nuclear Association welcomes Turkey as a newcomer country utilizing nuclear energy for growth and prosperity. We're going to be following the progress of Akuyu and Turkey over the next few months and years, I think. Uh, Warwick, there's also been some good news from Finland, hasn't there? There has. On 16th of April, Finnish utility TVO announced that test production had been completed at the Oklu 2 Unit 3 EPR. The unit is in what is what it calls regular electricity production. TVO intends to declare the unit in commercial operation on the 1st of May. It has been quite an achievement getting the unit online, as construction started in 2005, but has faced various delays. When the operating license was issued for Oklo 23 in March 2019, TVO's then Senior Vice President of Electricity Production, Mario Mustunen, said the unit, which will supply about 15% of the country's electricity, will be the greatest single action for the benefit of the climate ever in Finnish history. It is interesting to see that with the start-up of Oklo 23, public support for nuclear in Finland is at a record level. A poll conducted by Finnish Energy shows that 68% of Finns now support it, and of these, 68% said climate change was the main reason why. And this brand new EPR is going to be the largest reactor by output in Europe? Yes, it now becomes the largest operating reactor in Europe, with a generating capacity of 1,600 megawatts. There are already two EPR units in operation at Taishan in China. The design of those is slightly different, meaning they each have capacities of 1,660 megawatts. The further EPRs are being built in Europe, one at Flamenville in France and two at Hinker Point C in England. So this is basically the same design as the EPR for Flamenville and Hinkley Point, and presumably Sizewell. That's correct, Alex. We are still awaiting a final investment decision on Sizewell C, but the same EPR design is planned there, two units which will be a replica of Hinkley Point C. Further EPRs are planned in France, but a smaller 1200 megawatt version is being developed for export markets. So thanks a lot for the news roundup. That's Warwick Pipe and Claire Maiden. I'm delighted to be joined now by the president of Newart, Renaud Crassus. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too, and thanks for your time. Before we get stuck into the main subject matter, can you tell us a bit about your background and your journey to your current role? Yes, I've been working at, e- at EDF Group since 40 years. I was first, uh, before EDF, a researcher on climate and energy policies uh, as a citizen of France. And I spent 10 years working on that trajectories to reach uh, what we call two-degree trajectories at that time uh, that are now uh, carbon neutrality for 2050. And then I came to EDF working first as an economist and then a hydro operation manager. And to conclude in nuclear as director of uh, an engineering center on the conventional part of the plants and now as a, a new world director. That's been an interesting journey. I'm guessing that your previous role working towards net zero must have had an influence on your view of nuclear. Yes. In fact, the line of all my career is as a fight against climate change and how we can mitigate climate change very deeply. And I'm convinced that we need really all the available options to fight climate change, renewables, energy efficiency, and nuclear also. And that the more options we have enhance the biggest probability we have to reach that uh, because it's it's really a difficult challenge for all of us so so we need all of that 
And obviously, one of the areas where, as you say, we need everything is in nuclear. Uh, there's a lot of interest and excitement around small modular reactors and how they could possibly speed up the delivery of new nuclear. You're leading the work on EDF small modular reactor NUART. Can you tell us a bit about it and what makes it specifically so promising? Yes, NUART is as a product. It's a, a 340 megawatt plant with a third generation technology. So it, it rests on the high skills developed in France about these PWR technologies. And we have around the project for many years, all the skills that can be gathered in France around this skill, around this technology. And the plant is built with two reactors. So the one reactor is 170 uh, megawatts. What is new is that it is a full integrated PWR history, these integrated reactors, but they have never come to the market, to the civil markets before. And so we developed this technology because we think it's really complementary to the big plants, medium or gigawatt scale plants, because it's also expected from many clients in the world. And what is very interesting with SMRs is that among the clients or the potential clients that we have, we do not have only classic utilities that are interested in nuclear, but also industrial players or utilities that had never taken care about nuclear before. So it's widening the scope of civil nuclear in the energy transition. It was announced just recently that EDF has created Neward as a subsidiary company to drive forward the program. What's the rationale for taking that step? Well, it's a project to uh, combine the agility of a small company dedicated to Neward development of these products and the fact that we have gathered on these projects all the big companies that have uh, deep skills and a large experience on the PWR various reactors. So we try to, to combine those two things, agility and autonomy, I would say, and also to keep a very uh, tight contact and a tight cooperation with all these big actors of the nuclear sector. So presumably you think it will speed up your opportunity to act and make decisions? Yes, the main objective is to speed up because our clients, our potential clients, all expect a rapid delivery of the projects, of the products. And we have also competitors that are running against climate change, uh, as we as we do. And as a target, we have all 2030 as a target, uh, as a timeline. So to reach that, we must do much faster than we have had in the past. And then this new company is fully focused on the fact that we deliver very quickly these products. So the timeline that we've had for the new Art SMR has been first concrete in 2030. Is that still the timeline? Yes, this is our timeline. It's, it's a constant since 2019, where the official new Art project was launched based on previous R&D efforts by all the partners. Since that launching, we decided to focus on 2030 as the best compromise between the expectation of the potential market for SMRs and our ability to go quickly to deliver these new products. In a recent episode, we focused on the desire for more regulatory convergence in different countries for SMRs. Neward's a particularly interesting example in that context with some practical steps you're already taking in that area. How's that going? Yeah, you're right. This is probably one major stake for SMRs that are likely to be delivered in different countries with the same design. 
we absolutely need some common principles and some common rules so that we have not a huge effort to adapt the design to any country or, or to, to the, the neighbor country. So we decided to make a step in that direction by gathering with the help of the French regulator who has the lead on this framework, the jointly review. Uh, we decided to go in that direction to be able to make the regulators discuss among themselves on our design, which is very important, but that it is really a first step. They share the information, they share how they converge or they, or, or they diverge about one or two specifications on the safety case, etc. And the step after is that they begin to envisage how they could converge toward a common specification or common expectation. I would not talk about harmonization because harmonization is really a difficult task and probably a long trip for regulators but probably more about equivalences. That is to say that one regulator could say, okay, I accept the way that you have licensed this part of the design or this part of the safety case. And it is not the, the way I would have done it, but I accept that it is relevant that I can base my assessment on that. And just for listeners uh, who don't know, which countries' regulators are taking part? So currently in the, the joint early review gathered the French regulators, the Czech regulator and the Finnish regulator, three of us. And further down the road, you'd expect that would speed up the approvals process in those countries? It is not the first expectation. The first expectation is that we gather some very meaningful elements, meaningful assessments or pre-assessments in order to be sure that our design as more international and more ready to be exported in, in various countries. This is the first benefit we expect from this territory review. And you're right, the core benefit also, it's a win-win benefit for regulators because they begin to know more deeply what is in the new art design and if they are going to be able to pre-license or to license it in the future. So what further progress would you like to see? I strongly believe that equivalence is possible in the next decade, but sovereignty or autonomy of the various regulators in the way they want to license and the demand they want to raise toward vendors will remain, I think, very strong. So I believe much more in equivalence than in harmonization. Even if we are already harmonized between countries by the big principles, the strategic principles, thanks to the IEA uh, principles or things like that. There are upwards of 50 SMRs in development around the world. They certainly seem to hold huge potential between them. But how differently should people think about SMRs compared with traditional reactors? The first point is that we have different clients between big plants and small modular reactors. And we are more largely complementary than competitors, I would say. The second thing is that we must distinguish the third-generation SMR that are going to be ready around 2030, and the AMLs, the advanced modular reactors based on generation four technologies that are numerous around the table across the world, but they all face some technical uh, challenges to be solved. And I'm convinced that considering the large amount of money and the large amount of projects currently ongoing, they are going to realize to achieve breakthroughs in those technology difficulties. And we hope, we all hope that. But in terms of licensing, fuel cycle licensing, they will need more time to be on the market as something which is on the shelf, I would say. 
So let's think about SMLs and AMLs as complementary solutions that could extend the possibilities of using nuclear in the energy transition toward neutrality. It's interesting to hear how you see the market unfolding. But how different do you think it might be on a geopolitical front? SMRs look set to have different customers to the traditional large-scale plants. Do you think it's going to mean a more competitive commercial-style market developing? This is clearly a difficult question, I would say, because it's it's always a matter of energy, and energy is always a matter of of sovereignty, uh, economic security, or geopolitical uh, links between countries. So I would not expect that nuclear even with SMRs, get rid of of that situation because it's always energy, I would say. And even renewables are in this game like that. So as far as the segment of the the big SMRs are concerned, I would say from 100 to 400 uh, megawatts, we always talk about electric plants, power plants. So we still have these issues of public debates, of seating, of licensing, of how it is integrated in the landscape, for example, or in the neighborhoods. And so it's always a matter of national politics or local acceptability and and discussion with population. So I would not accept that SMRs really change this game. And that obviously will be a challenge for a large deployment of SMRs, where we vendors need to have a long pipe of projects to be competitive. And we all work for that to have a pipe of projects. But on the other situations, so governments and administration know very well all the things that you have to do to make it happen. And then the challenge of the two or three decades ahead of us is to find a way to respect all of that, the acceptability issue, debate with population, licensing, sitting, etc., but deploying faster those technologies to help fighting climate change. So with Nuance position, the first of a kind always takes longer to get up and running. And yet you also want a pipeline of orders, which will be helped by having something to demonstrate that this works. Yes, that's why we try to involve different countries, both in the design, in the jointly review, and also in our international advisory board. So that several countries, especially European countries, but not only, are interested into the development of the design. They are well aware of what we are currently designing and what New World can do or not. For example, they know very well that we can co-generate power and heat so that we can supply some industrial needs while producing electricity. And it will help probably, in our intention at least, it will help to have early clients that will probably have some interest before the first of a kind years online to know more or to order some new world in the future. So that's, we, we do not have time, I would say, to wait for the operational uh, dates of the first of a kind to discuss with potential clients when to have new projects. And finally, we also have this question of, will we use new world in France? And we should, as a vendor, I would love to have a theory of New World in France as a complementary way uh, of decarbonizing besides the big guns, but it is not decided yet at any level of France. And so I will work on that to be able to make a proposal because obviously it would be a change for the projects, a change for the climate, and probably a demonstration that we believe strongly in this technology also in, in our birth country. Just 
by way of clarification, that first concrete we talked about in 2030 is set to be in France, isn't it? Yes, that, that's clear. Is there a location set for that yet? No, we are currently studying the, the different sites that could be the sites of a, of a first of a kind, but we have currently uh, not decided anything. And we will have some discussion, obviously, with the administration, local authorities, etc., before we are able to say something publicly, I would say. It's also interesting to see that Newart uh, is being described as Europe's SMR rather than specifically a French SMR. Clearly, Newart is becoming European because we first we have partnerships, increasing number of partnerships with different companies outside of France, especially in Europe. Because our first market will be Europe. We know better the regulations and the laws in place in Europe, so it's easier for us. And the third reason is that we are in a run to hire people and to have talents helping to develop the project. And so we, we rely on the European labor markets to do that, not only on the French one. And it's really an important thing for that to become a European SMR built in Europe, designed in Europe with various European countries and, and companies. And on a broader point, and particularly, I guess, with your background, how do you see the nuclear sector looking by 2060 or so? And why do you see it as such a necessary part of the energy mix? Well, I, I love this question because it's long-term perspective, so I like this discipline. But this is really a difficult question because I see many enablers to be tackled so that the nuclear is going to play the right role in the carbonization trajectory. I think that the world energy outlook is projecting something like 820 or 30 gigawatts of nuclear in the net zero scenario. It is achievable technically in terms of investments, but it is really difficult to achieve with no change in regulation, no change in harmonization of safety rules, etc. So I would say that there is a probably in 2060 large variety of technologies on the markets, both Gen 3 and Gen 4 technologies together, so that we have a broad, a long-term solution to used fuel of the Gen 3 with the Gen 4 generation. That would be a very good news. And I hope we are on the road to uh, contribute as a major lever for decarbonization, reaching this 800 gigawatt scale. That sounds like it's going to be a very bright future for nuclear, but I guess there's going to be some challenges involved in being able to roll out nuclear on that sort of scale. Yes, uh, probably our main challenge is, is about skills and the amount of competences we have to deliver all these projects. We have to attract many people from other sectors to hire young people in, in large quantities. And so it's a new era, I think, for nuclear. And so let's not minimize this, this stage, uh, this challenge to attract people, to attract talents in the future. Well, that's great. A very positive note to end on. Many thanks for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, that's about all we have time for. Don't forget to check out our show notes for links to further information about the topics covered, as well as a link to sign up to our daily or weekly email newsletters. And do feel free to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts so you don't miss out on the next edition of the World Nuclear News. <laughs>